Well, the feeling is mutual, and I'm sure I speak for Pastor Tim as well. It's amazing how uh, you grow to love each other, even in such a short time like this. I think there's a built-in love that we have for each other as believers in general, but as you get acquainted, and especially there's something about ministering the Word. And I know Tim and I both have pastor's hearts, and we're not just here to speak. We're here to pastor, to shepherd through the Word, and you get connected to people when, when that is your heart, and and uh, you you are working, you are at- attending, you are listening, you are processing, you are responding, and so you're engaged as well, and so we appreciate you. And uh, you can't have camp without campers, right? And so just your being here this week. So so we th- that that appreciation is definitely mutual. And I do echo everything Tim said this morning and appreciation for everyone here who has made this just a fantastic week. And so we, we appreciate it so very much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And uh, from the bottom of our hearts. And, uh, you know, again, th- what, what, what would this summer have been like? You know, who, who knew what the summer was going to be like, right? In fact, I, I keep, there are new words now, COVIDized, right? We're going to COVIDize to get ready for the fall or or uh, 2020'd. Well, some, another disaster happened. We just got 2020'd, right? And, and so all, all that could have just totally wiped out camp. But praise God, you were able to have camp, and you are here, and we are here. And so uh, that is a privilege. And I thank you. I thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate very much uh, Pastor Phil and Pastor Stephen entrusting me with this opportunity and allowing me to be part of it. And we are praying for not only an immediate impact of God's Word on everyone's lives here, but also for there to be long-term fruit. Uh, Because this is an investment. You're investing your week. We're investing our energy, our gifts, our time. And so the desire is that there would be some long-term fruit in everybody's lives uh, all the way around. I do want to say thanks. uh, our, Our table this morning... Well, first of all, it, it, it felt like temptation when that box of blueberry glazed donuts from Quickstar was sitting in front of my place. So whoever did that, thank you. Um, and uh, we definitely shared that as a table. And so that, that was very sweet and kind of you and thoughtful. So uh, it was somewhat of a stumbling block, but I won't, uh, I won't, I won't hold that against you. So um, I will be... I will be uh, heading back home tonight right after the service. I just have to get back for responsibilities starting tomorrow, getting ready for the school year. And so I won't be here in the morning. But again, it's just been a sweet time, a precious time, and, and I am so uh, grateful to you. And uh, again, just, just so there's no misunderstanding, this is a clean shirt. Um, now these jeans I've worn all week, so they're ready for the laundry. But uh, you can do that with jeans, right? And they can make it a month. And... Uh, <laughs> So they get better as, as, as you go, I think. So anyway, uh, when, I, when I started pastoring um, after being a youth pastor for four years and then started pastoring in Wisconsin, pastored there for nine and a half years, and then in South Carolina for 12 years, I, I had a desire to have a growing church. Now, is that wrong? Is it wrong to have an ambition to pastor a church that's growing, or as a church member, is it wrong to have a desire to be part of a growing church? Well, it probably depends on what you mean by that and what your motivation really is. 
And we all have to wrestle with that, right? And as a pastor, you know, why do I want to be part of a growing church? Why do I want to see my church grow? And what really is growth? What is biblically based, authentic, God-honoring, Christ-glorifying growth in a church? And I wrestled with that. And and there, there are always materials and seminars and, and, you know, celebrity speakers and, and authors and so on about how to grow your ministry and all of that. But this, there was a period of time when it seemed like that was just at the forefront and the idea of church growth was, was just huge. And, and that, was, uh, that made an impression on me. There was something in me that wanted to be part of that. But I thought, you know, I really need to examine the scriptures and understand what a growing church is, what God's Word says about that. And uh, the Bible I used to preach from, um, I, I began to realize that, that certain sections of it, you could look at the edges of the pages and see that my, my thumbs had been over those edges enough times to where they started to kind of feather and, and come apart and sort of be raised up above the other pages and, and that was primarily in the New Testament and primarily in the, the epistles. And I began to realize that, that the pages of the book of Ephesians were pretty much falling out. And, and the reason was because in my search for understanding of what a growing church is, I kept landing in Ephesians and specifically in Ephesians chapter 4. And I can go back to the spreadsheet where I have a record of all the sermons that I preached over my my time as a pastor, and I can look at that spreadsheet and see all the times that I preached messages from Ephesians chapter 4. Maybe the people that I preached to got tired of that, but I wanted to guide and, and feed and nourish and lead our church in, in growing in the way that God intended for us to. And so as uh, I finished my, my time of pastoring and was heading into teaching ministry, these thoughts, these ideas, these principles were on my heart. I did want to capture them in writing and hopefully provide a resource that might be helpful for some others and also just something that I could use even myself in, in working with others. And, and so I wrote The Thriving Church, The True Measure of Growth. And so that's the book that's available there in the gift shop. I think there's one more time tomorrow that if you wish, you can stop by and pick that up. I appreciate very much the gift shop uh, carrying that. But the, the, the ver- verses 1 through 16 uh, contain this this uh, long sequence of thought that the Apostle Paul um, produces and, and lays out for us in understanding how a church grows, and, and there are several concepts in there. And, and we're not going to try to explore, of course, all of those tonight, but I do want to highlight for you as we get started here the end of that sequence of thought in verse 16. You're welcome to look at it. In fact, I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. But I invite you to, to consider how he ends up that line of thought where he says, from the whole body, and of course by body, what's he talking about? The body of Christ, which is the church, right? And now he describes it as being joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. So every part, every person, every member contributes to this according to the effective working by which every part does its share. So you have a role. You have a contribution to make every part. Now what happens when we're doing that? What happens when every single one of us is doing our part? Pastors, people, all of us. It causes the growth of the body. 
There it is. Paul says it very clearly. This causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So at the end of this long sequence of thought and these contributing factors, he says, the result of all of this is that the body itself, which is the subject of this sentence, the body itself causes the body to grow. So you have a part in causing your church to grow. So if you say, I want to be part of a growing church, awesome. Don't just show up and wait for it to happen, right? Don't just say, well, I hope those pastors are having some pretty productive meetings and, and, and have some awesome plans and a great vision and, and just really go at it because I want to be part of a growing church. Guess what? We're all part of that, right? We all contribute to that. My heart is, as you even go from here tonight, tomorrow, and head back into your, your homes and continue to, uh, to, to function in relationship with other believers in your churches, that you will take this heart, that you will take this, really this responsibility with you of helping your church grow. Now, as I was in one community pastoring, there was a, a mega church, and I'm not bashing mega churches by any means, nothing wrong with having a big church, right? Um, but there was an extremely large church, and, and they passed out T-shirts to all their, their people and said, hey, go wear these T-shirts as you're going around shopping and doing your stuff in the community. And it said, I love my church. And the idea was that people would you know, look at that and say, oh, what, you love your church. You must have a great church. What church do you go to? You know, so, and, and again, that's great. That's an awesome way to, to engage people in conversation. But in thinking about that, I think, I think we can, ha- again, have that mentality. Well, yeah, I, I like my church, or even I love my church, or I, I want to love my church, but I don't necessarily love my church. And what, what is behind that? And I have this little illustration. I'm not sure if it works for you, but, but, but it helps me think about it. We have a dog. Uh, we got him when he was a puppy. It was one of those things where, you know, we said to the kids, okay, we're going to go to the shelter, and we're going to look. You know, not bringing anything home, right? But we're just going to look because maybe someday we'll get a puppy, you know, kind of thing. And of course, we brought one home. And, and so his name is Hobo. And he was this pitiful little thing. He was like the smallest dog. You know, he has this little tear in his ear, you know, and all this stuff. And so we had pity on him. And his papers said he was wandering at large. And so he ended up with the name Hobo. But so our kids are all gone. And now Faith and I are at home and we ended up with Hobo. So, and my 90, almost 98-year-old mother lives with us. And when, when our, our, our youngest son graduated from college and, and he moved on and, uh, my mom and my wife and my, my, my mom and I were standing talking to somebody, I think in the church lobby one time, and about the fact that our kids were moving on. And my mom said, yeah, we're empty nesters. <laughs> so, so, so Faith and, and me and, and Grandma Taylor and Hobo are empty nesters, but we're, we're in the nest together. So, so we have Hobo. But, you know, I love him. I mean, I do. And there's just something about, you know, that little warm, furry head and just kind of kind of putting your hand on there. I'm sitting in my comfortable chair and putting my hand down and kind of rubbing that head and he kind of looks up like that. And those brown eyes, I mean, they just, they look into your soul, right? And it's just like, aww, you know, and he's just so sweet. And it's like, it's like warm waves just go up your arm as you pet a dog like that into your heart and into your, you know, your being. It's just, it's good, right? 
And so, so I can do that and I can be thinking, oh, I just love hobo, you know. I just, I just love my dog. Well, well, what do I love about that? Well, I love the feeling it gives me to pet my dog. Now, there are times when he's very annoying and, you know, just really, really bothersome. And so there are times when I would say, I hate my dog, right? But in those moments, I, I love my dog. Why? Because I love what he does for me. Now, take that concept and transfer that over to your church. You would say, yeah, I like church. I love my church, or I want to love my church. Why would you say that? Is it possible that, that you think that because you love what your church does for you? I mean, sometimes there is just a warmth and, and a joy and almost an electricity and we, you know, we enjoy some, some times of worship that just lift our souls. We hear a message that blesses our hearts. And we have some friends there. And, you know, we, there's some reasonably good coffee out in the lobby when we come in and all that. It's like, yeah, I just love my church, man. You know, but the question is, what, what do you mean by that? Do you love it for what it does for you? The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ, that the husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and what? Gave himself for it, right? So Christ loves the church, doesn't he? And he doesn't love the church for what it does for him or how it makes him feel, does he? No, he loves the church to the extent that, that he gave his life. He gave himself for the church. So could you say tonight, yeah, I love my church, and I love my church so much that I want to give myself to and for the church, my church. Not just enjoy what I get from it and be disappointed when I don't get from it what I expect or what I wish or what I desire. But I'm just going to give myself like Jesus did for the church, right? And so that's, that's the mentality that we're going here. That's what... That's what we are working toward. And so, so the idea is, do, do you love your church for what it does for you? Or do you truly want the best for your church? And will you give of yourself, even when it is hard, so that your church will grow? And if you will, if you want to do that, I encourage you to learn the principles from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, because these will guide you in how to contribute to the growth of your church, how to give yourself for the growth of your church. Well, the, the one that we're going to focus on here tonight is working at unity from verses 1 through 3. In fact, look with me at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. So now we're backing all the way up to the first few sentences that Paul lays out here, first few ideas in, in, in Ephesians chapter 4, starting with verse 1. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So Ephesians 1 through 3, some uh, simple uh, outlines of, of the book of Ephesians would say that verses ch chapters 1 through 3 are about our wealth in Christ, who we are and what we have in Christ, and then chapters 4 through 6 about our walk in Christ. And actually, chapter 6 also includes our warfare in Christ as well, right? Put on the armor of God. 
So, so he's been talking about who, who we are, what we have in Christ, our wealth, the riches that we have of grace in Christ Jesus. And now he says, all right, now live accordingly, walk worthy, live in a way that corresponds to this calling with which you were called. And he, he, he lists some attitudes here, which we'll get to, but notice verse three, how do you walk worthy? You do it by endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now, let's talk about unity just for a few minutes here and working at unity. Uh, I try to keep track and, and stay aware of what's happening in ministry and churches and, and pastoral life as I'm teaching now, pastoral studies and trying to be a friend to pastors. Pastors in the last, what's it been now? March, April, May, June, what, what five months? Pastors in the last five months since COVID started have been under such pressure. And I just, I saw it immediately. I saw it in our pastor and I talked with him and he said, I am making hundreds of decisions every day about what to do next. And the information is changing and there's so much uncertainty. And the, 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 the orders, you know, that are coming from the government authorities. And then there are the opinions of the leaders and the members in the churches, Right? And pastors were under such pressure, all of a sudden, all these pastors are having to become YouTube preachers, right? Now, some of them enjoyed it. I saw, I saw some of these pastors, like, yeah, here's my setup, you know, and I'm doing this. And I think some of them really kind of enjoyed the whole TV preacher thing. But, but for a lot of them, it was like, what do I do? You know, where, where do I even start? How do I make this happen? So much pressure. And I thank God for our pastors and other leaders and, and people in the churches who made these things happen and navigated through such challenging times. But what a weight, right? What a difficulty. But through that, uh, we, we all have our, our ideas about uh, what, what, you know, how serious COVID is and what the, the best ways of preventing the spread of COVID are and how businesses and schools and families and churches should respond to that. And as I was in a family camp back in the beginning of July and talking about this, and, and one pastor there said, my people are dividing over masks. You know, that's the reality. That's the reality. That's the sad reality. Now, can we have different opinions? Absolutely. But when it becomes a point of contention and even division among church members, that's a problem. That's a problem. And so this is what pastors are dealing with, and this is what churches are experiencing. And right now is a time for us to say, you know what? We need to work at unity. We need to make sure that we are cultivating and protecting and maintaining unity. Well, what is unity? You could say it's the absence of conflict. Well, we haven't had any big church fights lately, so we, we have unity. And there's a sense in which unity is the absence of conflict. We could say it is harmony, everyone getting along. I think another important element of it is working together, right? Working together. There's unity in the church when members are carrying out their responsibilities to help the church function as it should. But again, I think it goes deeper than just the absence of conflict or the presence of harmony or working together. There's an element of commitment there. We are committed to the cause, and we are committed to one another. 
There's an element of commitment, and there's also an element of affection or love, right? It's not just that we signed a, you know, a, a covenant, but that, that we, we care about each other. We truly love one another. So yes, it's the absence of conflict, the presence of harmony and, and working together, but there's also a deep affection and a lifelong commitment by the members for one another. And if your church is going to grow, and by the way, growth can include growing by people being saved or being discipled and added to the number of that body. Absolutely, churches can grow numerically. Some churches are in settings where that can be very slow, right? But churches can grow in other ways. And again, we find that in this text. I'm not delving into that here tonight. But churches are to be growing toward the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And that is the true measure of growth and all that that includes. But we can be working at growth by working at unity. Now, when Paul says it here at the beginning of chapter 4, I, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you, I, you, we're talking about relationships, aren't we? In fact, he has been talking to people who themselves lived in a divided culture. In, in chapter 2, he's been saying to them, you know what, you were, you, there was a wall between you as Jews and Gentiles. Those who are a member of God's chosen people, the descendants of Abraham, and those who are not, right? The nations. A huge divide between you. But... In Jesus Christ, that middle wall has been broken down and you have been brought together into one new man. And that new man is the church. It's the body of Christ. And so it is the church that brings people together. So we are positionally unified. You are one. We here tonight, all who are believers, are one in Christ. You and all the members of your church are one in Christ positionally, right? And so he's saying, you are one positionally, but now walk worthy of that. Walk worthy of that. The church brings people together. It has brought you together with other people. Going to church means assembling and worshiping and growing and uniting with other people. And just like in Ephesus, two vastly different people groups were brought together. You have been thrown together with people, many of them very different from you. And this is a great truth. It looks good on paper, but imagine how difficult it must have been for those Jews and Gentiles to be truly unified. And when they met at church gatherings, they knew that that difference was there. And when they went about life in the community, their attitudes toward each other had to be totally transformed so that it wasn't this, but it was this, right? There had to be a practical unity there. And your church brings you together with people that you would never have otherwise met or become friends with. And I know in some communities, because of the size of the community, you kind of know everybody. But, but the church has, has pushed and, and placed you together with people that you would not be close to. And you are very different in personality, in appearance, in occupation, in race, in family background, stage of life, generation, income, maturity. There are just so many differences. There's such individuality. And, and that is why being together does not necessarily equal unity. It is, it is partly because people are so different from each other. We're just different. But there's also the reality that we are sinful, right? 
We have that sin nature and we're naturally self-centered and church people are selfish and church people sin. We shouldn't be surprised by that. We actually view and treat other church members in ways that are sinful. So that's why he says here, we need to, verse 3, endeavor. And it's not hard to figure out what that word means, right? It means to work hard at it. Endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, what we're going to do is is look at these attitudes that Paul emphasized in verse 2. So how do we do that? How do we endeavor? What do we work at? What do we cultivate in our lives? And he lists four attitudes there in verse 2. Lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, and bearing with one another in love. And that's what we're going to going to focus on here. So how can you work at unity? First of all, and this is what's in your notes, actually last night's uh, notes in your booklet there, this is uh, the first way to work at unity is based on this word lowliness. And the way that, that I am summarizing the idea of this word is to say it means to maintain a realistic view of yourself. You may see the word humility in your translation. Now, in, in Paul's day, in Ephesus, this would have been an insult. Oh, you're just so lowly. A person described in this way was viewed as weak and servile. But as with many concepts, for believers, it has a positive connotation. It means you're not self-serving. You're not arrogant. You're not domineering. In fact, this person considers others more important than himself or herself and is concerned for them more than him or his or herself. That's lowliness. This is the word that Paul used in Philippians 2, where he says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. And listen, let each of you, every single one of you, look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And so it just means that, that you're not swelled up. You're not self-absorbed, right? You have a realistic view of yourself. That's the idea contained in humility. Humility is viewing yourself as you really are. So I naturally think about church the way I want it, whether it's as a pastor or a church member, right? Which that's what I am now. I'm a church member. And I'm involved, but I observe. I watch what happens up front. I sing the songs, I listen to the message, I walk through the lobby, I sit in the classes. And again, yes, I serve, I'm involved, but it's different. And and there are expectations, there are wishes, there are things that I would like to be a certain way or to, to impact or benefit me in a specific way. I have expectations and desires, right? We all have those. And this is this is where we have to be very careful that we're not thinking, you know what? It's about me. And I like it when it's meeting my expectations and I'm upset or annoyed or mad when it isn't. I'm going to ask a list of diagnostic questions. And sometimes I'm a little nervous asking these because they can be a little bit upsetting. And I don't mean to do that. But I have found that these questions raise issues in people's minds to where people think, hmm, okay, yeah, maybe... Maybe I have an inflated view of myself or I view church as being more about me than I should. So here they are. Do you thrive on the good feelings you have when people affirm you and show concern for you? Now, I like it when people say, so how how are you? 
And how is that thing that you asked prayer for? I mean, yeah, I like that. Or, hey, we, you know, we haven't seen you. Or, is everything okay? But do I thrive on the good feelings I have? Or, or if I preach or teach and people say, oh, thank you, that was really good. Do I thrive on that? Are you happy when the music pleases you? And when the preaching pleases you? Are you upset when they don't? Are you jealous when someone else is affirmed or others' preferences are met and yours aren't? Do you get miffed when the pastor forgets to mention your special prayer request? Do you gripe or even inwardly grumble when you are passed over for an opportunity to sing or hold office or something? If you are bothered when the church doesn't fulfill your wishes or expectations, then you may have a problem with lowliness and have an inflated view of yourself and think that church is about you. So here's a reality check, and these are some truths that remind us of really who we are. You were created. Everything you have was ultimately given to you by God. You're far from perfect. You're a sinner saved by grace, as is every member of the church. You do have strengths, but you also have weaknesses. And you are not superior to anybody else in the church, regardless of how long you've been in that church, what positions you've held in that church, how important you are in the community, how much money you contribute in the offering. You are not superior to anybody in that church. In fact, somebody that you're looking at and feeling superior to has some really good qualities that you should appreciate. You see, it's pride that gets in the way of our relationships. And it keeps us from being genuinely interested in others and having concern for them. It keeps you from being transparent about your own need for growth. And pride is a disease in the body of Christ, really. So how do you cultivate lowliness? Well, this is something that God's Spirit works in us. This is the character of Christ, right? Humility is who Jesus is. It's what He embodied. It's how He lived. As Paul said in Philippians 2, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. He was lowly. And so we need to adopt the mind of Christ and develop the character of Christ. It is the Holy Spirit who grows that in us. And so we can acknowledge our self-centeredness to God and say, God, I don't want this in my life. This is hurting relationships. This is hindering unity. This is holding back growth in my church. So will you help me to grow in lowliness? Will you help me to have this realistic view of myself? Now, there's a second way that we find here in Ephesians 4, verse 2, that we can be intentional about unity and work at unity. It doesn't just happen by itself. Unity naturally deteriorates. So how can we work at it? The second way is to exercise conscious restraint. Exercise conscious restraint, and that is the meaning of the word gentleness in my translation here in verse 2. Gentleness. It's sometimes translated meekness in the New Testament and the simple definition of this word is strength under control. Strength under control. You could assert your will in a given situation, but you don't. 
You could dominate with your personality or take advantage of your position, but you restrain yourself. And you let somebody else have their say and even have their way. I'm sure you know what the largest land animal is, right? It's obviously the elephant. Uh, African elephants weigh from two to seven tons. An elephant can lift 600 pounds just with its trunk. And elephants were used like tanks in ancient warfare. I mean, they're massive. They're strong. I read about a group of tourists in Africa who were driving through a national park, and they stopped to watch a bull elephant. And, and the, the elephant approached the car and just flipped it over with, with its tusks. Circuses used to have elephants. They don't have any more, but... When they did, elephants could do amazing things, right? Remember, I took our little family with our kids one time to a circus. It wasn't like, you know, the big name circus. It was just out in a field somewhere. We paid a few bucks and walked in the tent and sat in folding chairs around the ring. And, you know, there were the clowns and the, you know, all that stuff. And all of a sudden, they brought out the elephants. And these, these elephants were running in a circle around the ring. And we were in the front row and like ears and, and trunks were like coming, you know, around like this over us. And literally elephant spit was slinging out of their mouths. And we're like, you know, like this, you know, who wants that on them? We were that close. It was pretty cool. And I mean, that, an elephant could have, you know, just stopped and like, think, you know, pushed us over or, or you know, gone, gone crazy. Um, but they're, they're trained, and elephants can, can be as, as delicate and balanced as a ballerina, right, if they want to. That is strength under control, right? Now, transfer that over to the church setting. And I want to be careful here, but I know as a pastor that there are people with strong personalities. There are people with, who've been Christians for a long time. There are people who are important in the community. There are people who are in leadership positions in the church, and they have opinions, and sometimes those are strong opinions, and they have ideas, and a lot of times they're right. And they have influence. We call them prominent church members, right? And they get kind of used to having their way. Having their say and having their way. And can, maybe even unintentionally, maybe without realizing, act like a, like a bull, or we might even say an elephant in a china shop, right? Just in a business meeting, in a deacon's meeting, in a committee meeting, in a discussion, in a conversation, talking with the pastor or whatever, and just assert their will, state their opinion, and expect this is how it's going to be, right? Now, thank God, thank God for people with, with great ideas and strong opinions and and intense personalities, and mature in their, in their life, and their walk, and, and whom God has blessed financially, and who contribute generously to the church. Praise God for you. Praise God for those people. But sometimes there's a need to just be very careful that that strength is kept under control, right? And used in the proper way. Used in the right time. Controlled by the Holy Spirit. It takes wisdom to know when to assert your strength and when to refrain. And you need to consciously depend on the Holy Spirit 
to help you with this. And I'll flip it around and say the same is true for pastors, right? I mean, we have to be careful as well. We can't just domineer and and leverage our position and say, bam, this is how it's going to be. Yes, pastors do have an element of leadership and authority. We are overseers. Pastors are overseers. But there needs to be a meekness there, right? Needs to be that strength under control. So daily yield to him. Ask God to reveal to you ways that you assert yourself when you should not. And he will help you know when you should exercise those strong points and how to do it in a way that is gracious and humble and glorifying to God. And you can use that strength that you have to contribute to the direction, the momentum, the blessing, the growth of your church. Here's another way to intentionally pursue unity. It's in the word long-suffering, summarizing it this way, develop patient endurance. ESV uses the word patience here. Older terminology is long-suffering. It's the idea of patient endurance. You're going to have problems with people. And by the way, all of these have to do with people, right? Not just circumstances, but people. Your feelings will get hurt. Someone will offend you. Your leaders will not fulfill your expectations all the time. Uncomfortable situations will weigh on the church family. Churches go through seasons and times when there are just stressful situations, whether it's because of sin within the church family or financial pressures or community crises or transitions in leadership. There are times when there's just a weight and a heaviness and a stress on the church. And those times will come. Joyful seasons will make you smile and tragic circumstances will bring tears. And disagreements will strain even the closest of ties. And you may have experienced this in a church setting where there's a disagreement and all of a sudden you've got extended family and now they're at odds with each other. And there's that emotional pain and that barrier that's there and sometimes somebody leaves and ends up affecting the family relationship. This is reality. So what are you going to do when these things happen? Well, some people stop speaking. Others avoid crossing paths. Some pull up stakes and set up camp in another church, and that becomes a way of life for some people. God's Word calls us to long-suffering, to patient endurance. Long means long. Suffer means to experience passion, to feel deeply. The idea here is is someone who is long-suffering is is not short-tempered. They are not impatient. They are not quickly judgmental. What does long-suffering look like in church life? A long-suffering person does not react, does not speak impulsively, doesn't blow up, doesn't impose harsh ultimatums or sharp demands on others, is patient, willing to listen to an explanation, to give others space to grow, to get the whole story before passing judgment, is slow to react to hurts and offenses, and it reflects that deep commitment, right? So it's not just, hey, we all go to the same church, we're in unity, or even... We work together. We function together. It's that deep commitment. I am committed to you. 
I'm committed to you. And I'm willing to suffer, to experience pain over a long period of time. And it compels you to stay in rather than to bail out of a relationship. Let me just share with you quickly how God's word increases our understanding of long-suffering. Would you just listen? You may want to jot down these references. Galatians 5.22 tells us we become long-suffering when we yield to the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. We can pray for this. Colossians 1, Paul says, For this reason we also, Colossians 1, verses 9 through 11, Since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and ask that you may be filled in the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to His glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Any prayer requests? Yes, I have some tests coming up. Yes, uh, I'm concerned about this situation at work. Uh, yes, pastor would... Could we just pray that we would all be long-suffering <laughs> with each other? Could we, could we ask God and beg God to help us have that characteristic in our lives as a church? Because we really need that. Right? Pray for this is what he's saying. And we can consciously choose to be long-suffering. Colossians 3.18, put off anger, wrath, malice. Colossians 3.8, verses 12 and 13 say, Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. And it is the problems and the hurts and the offenses and the difficulties that test us. And those are times to say, all right, I'm going to put on long-suffering. I'm going to choose to be long-suffering in this situation. Maybe there's one on your mind right now. Maybe it's, it's back there. You're going home to it. Oh, there's that person. There's that situation. I feel like I just want to bail. Just want to be out of it. Maybe it's time to say, you know what? I'm staying in. I'm going to suffer long. You can choose to do that. And you know what our ultimate motivation is? God's incredible long-suffering with us, right? You, O oh Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. Psalm 86, 15. Paul talked about God's long suffering toward him in 1 Timothy 1.16, and Peter as well in 2 Peter 3.9. And if you and I are going to contribute to the health and growth of our church, we have to learn to patiently work through problems and be long-suffering. The third way to work at unity is to practice loving acceptance. Excuse me, the fourth way is to practice loving acceptance. The verse says, bearing with one another in love. The word bear means to endure. But it's coupled with this idea of selfless care and concern for each other. So we endure, we are patient, but the way we do that is by loving each other. And so that love compels us to not pull back, to not push away, but to embrace and to stay in and to walk together with. So bearing with people in love. Uh, a, a couple asked me to help them, and the man specifically was asking me to help him with his marriage. And he was describing the relationship to me. 
And he said this, he said, she makes dinner, but it doesn't have love in it. <laughs> so they were functioning as a, as a couple, right? But what he was describing was they were just going through the motions. And even sharing a meal together was not a time of sharing love. What about your church? Do you just go through the motions, show up for services, Maybe even have the Lord's Supper together. Maybe even share a meal, the Lord's Supper, or church fellowships. But is there love? And by love, we're talking about, again, that selfless care for each other. Love is a necessary element to a growing body. And relationships are important in the body of Christ. Uh, my wife's not here to defend herself, but she knows that I share this with you, so it's okay. Um, you know, we all have our little little quirks, right? And and so for me, when the, the the gas gauge needle gets on a quarter of a tank, it's time to fill up. How many of you are with me on that? Okay, of course. I mean, that's obvious, right? So you don't run out of gas. That's yeah. Okay, there you go. Yeah. Okay. We'll see. Three miles left. Yeah. Okay. We'll see now. Now my wife likes, and this was before digital fuel gauges, but you know, to get let that needle get down to the E. Maybe the top corner of the, you know, the first bar on the E and then down to where it's on that middle shorter one. And just to just kind of see, you know, see, see what would happen. And literally one time she drove around near a gas station to see how far it would go. Right. Just just to see. So true story. True story. So guess, of course, what has happened. She's run out of gas. Right. And so who does she call? Hubby. And yeah, right, AAA. So, so, so I show up and I'm being nice, you know, and it's okay. You know, it's okay. Um, she says, I'm so sorry, you know, and, and literally, you know, saying, it, it's okay. You know, I love you. But what are you thinking? She said. <laughs> Don't ask me that. Uh. And I want, to, I want to take that thought and think in terms of, of our relationships in church. So we have this commitment. We are church members, right? And somebody messes up or somebody causes us a problem and somebody hurts our feelings and somebody just, just affects church life in a way or it doesn't fulfill your expectations. Sooner or later, stress is injected into church life and into a relationship. And how do you respond? And what are you thinking when you do it? That's the question, right? Are you thinking, you know what? This is my brother in Christ. This is my sister in Christ. I love this person. Of course I'm going to help them. Of course I'm going to care for them. Of course I'm going to hang in there with them. Of course we're going to work through this, whatever it is, because I love them. Do you love people? Do you love old people, young people, millennials, Gen, Gen Zs, people who have it all together, the guy who drives a $75,000 truck, the family that comes rattling in and leaks oil on the nice, nice uh, drive-through thing next to the church in their you know, old beat-up vehicle. You love the people that are easy for you to talk to, the people that are awkward to have even a three-minute conversation with. Do you love them? Love is a choice. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. It's interesting to me that truth is the foundation of the church, and you see that in verses 4 and 5 and 6. Those are the fundamentals of the faith. But the first few verses, Paul talks about the fundamentals of church 
life, right? And those are the attitudes and those are the relationships and that is where you can help contribute to unity. So I hope this just gives you a taste and maybe, maybe uh, piques your interest and whets your appetite for Ephesians 4. Hope that as you go from here, you will make it your resolve to work at unity in your church. Is there anywhere there's not unity? Are you willing to work at it? Jesus Christ is building his church. Your church can grow. And one way is by you committing to work at unity. Father, I pray that our churches would be blessed. I pray that we as members of the body of Christ would each do our part. What a blessing, what a privilege to belong to the body of Christ. You've purchased us with your own blood. You've joined us to the body of Christ. We praise you for that. Help us to do our part for your glory. And so the world may see. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.